I was at a uh, music festival and they were giving away, uh, they were doing free uh, hearing tests and uh, they give you a chart when you walk out. And um, my mine was a big dip in my left ear in a 4K and a slightly lesser one in the right ear. And it was from the guitar amp on my left and the ride cymbal on my right. And they told me I had something called Machine Gunner's Ear, which was you know from World War II with the Machine Gunners would come home. And then everybody in the band uh, came out with their own little chart and their own little story. Wow. And then our sound man, <laughs> who was he's 15 or 20 years older than me, uh, came out and he was just stone deaf. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Just give me a, a great pleasure to introduce Hamilton. Lighthouser to Curious Creatures, welcome. That's it. Hamilton, you're in New York, right? I am in New York, yes. You're in New York. We, we, we must like share, strangely, a lot of influences. What, what got you interested in, in starting a band? In rock and roll. When I was a little kid, it would have been the music that my dad listened to, which would be something like the Rolling Stones. But for me personally, I, was, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and uh, there was a really vibrant music scene there just above my age so that I was too young to really appreciate it, but I kind of caught the tail end of it. So when I got to be like 14 or 15, I suddenly realized what all those bad brain stickers were and who Minor Threat was and, <laughs> and, and Fugazi and that kind of thing. And I, I, so I, I, uh, I caught the tail end of that. And the great thing about them is they would do these shows where, you, you know, they had this rule that it had to be all ages. So it was like, well, it's the only show you can go to. So you might as well, it was a great way to get the kids in there. So uh, that's where, that was where I started really wanting to do it. Which club was that? Was that, was that the 930 club or something? Yeah. And then the Black Cat was sort of the slightly more hipster club where I used to see the makeup and stuff. But um, the, the guys who used to play like, we, like outdoor venues, like the Washington Monument or at Maryland University, they sort of are at like LaFont Plaza or something. Uh, not really sort of a traditional club show. You'd, they'd always, you'd always find them at some sort of DIY kind of joint as their style. So that was where I got my start. And then my older cousin and them were in a band that, called Jonathan Fireter, and I, I really looked up to them and they... Uh, they sort of paved the way for what became my band, The Walkman, that we joined up together and became The Walkman in New York. And that was in like 2000. In 2000. I mean, I'm going way back. If I go back to uh, to, to, to like our beginning in, in Liverpool, we had Eric's Club, which also did like Saturday afternoon matinee gigs, especially for the kids that couldn't, were not allowed in because of the licensing restrictions. So if you were playing Eric's on Saturday, you quite often would do like an afternoon show and then clear everybody all the kids like the real punks as we had then you know they're like the, the 14 15 year old punks uh and then the, then we'd like clear that clear the, that riffraff out and then we'd they'd let in the um the real 
adults, you know, who weren't quite sure what punk or anything was. But we had a lot of good bands come through, like Talking Heads, Devo, um, you know, Blondie, uh, the Ramones, and of course all the British bands. But I'm just thinking of the American bands that visited. And for some reason, they kind of came to Liverpool and then and Manchester and London. So we were kind of just overwhelmed, really blown away by the, uh, I suppose, the creativity that suddenly boomed out of New York. So I was watching some YouTubes um, with your band, with the Walkman, and to me, listening to your stuff, it, it's kind of like, uh, maybe it's an esoteric kind of occupation, but I find myself listening and wondering if I'd been born here, if I would have followed that same path, you know, because there's, there's definite little, um, I don't know, like tendencies in the music that I can hear that are universal to young men finding their way in the world and trying to make sense out of it all you know and and that's fascinating to me and it's also very very charming you know because i listen to like the lyrics and i listen to the emphasis in the music and i can identify with it even though you know i'm like a, a literally a generation apart from it it's the same thing it's the same mood and it's the same atmosphere and the same intention i think in it and I, I, that's what i can identify with in fact even if you were singing in french i could identify with the the um you know the the, the feeling and that to me is is a sign of uh, of great great hope because some people my age will turn around to me and go you know what there's no good music anymore and i tell them no you're wrong you're wrong. You just don't know where to listen for it anymore. You don't know where to go to find it. No, I think there's plenty of good music, especially now. Well, we would have, my entire band would have been influenced by both of you guys a lot. And uh, especially towards the beginning, I mean, I can specifically remember listening to like Head on the Door and being like, okay, that, that we're taking that bass part. <laughs> oh, nice, nice steal. Yeah, 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 hey. But, uh, so uh, especially towards the beginning of our bands, we would have, I mean, the guys in my band are five years older than me. And that actually makes a huge difference, you know, because you're right. When you really start getting into rock and roll, it's usually, I don't know, it seems like there's a consistent thing where people are 13, 14, and then you're actually maybe physically able to get your bandmates together when you're 16 or something like that. Yeah. And then maybe you're physically able to get through a show without everything blowing up by the time you're like 18 or something, you know, that's like, right. so they're like five years older than me. So then they would have probably been able to see you guys play which i never have yeah that that makes a much bigger difference when you're younger is all i'm all i'm saying you know because back then each year is its own important moment for you you know for me i remember you know for myself and robert the, the people that were uh, like you know a few years older than us were our brothers you know so our brothers would take us to gigs and things and sort of show us what what you had to listen to you know right and so I, I passed that down with my son you know when my son was like you know 12 years old I'm like okay this is Captain Beefheart put it on you're not going to understand it at first but eventually you'll love it you know and he did you know and he loved it and then he would play it to his friends and just watch his friends go mad go like oh, what is this i can't listen to this it's it's killing my head and then they'd all come around to it so right 
Well, it's good that he didn't rebel. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, he did. <laughs> it's good, like rebel and start listening to the straightest crap. You know. Yeah. No, he did rebel for a long time. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't going to acknowledge. You know that his dad was who his dad was. You know, musically, he wasn't going to do that. And then probably about mm, I don't know the last five years. You know, he's in his early thirties now. Last five years, his his uh, bandmate turned to him and said. You have to listen to your dad's stuff because this is what, you know, this is the stuff right here. And so, you know, it wouldn't have been able to be told by me, you know, because I'm his father. And I understood that, you know, I never once pushed him to go, oh, you know, you've got to learn how to play this. And <laughs> to uh, his great credit, he's turned around and, and told me how much he loves it now and stuff. And, and he, you know, we, Amazing. yeah, which is great. You know, he didn't have, that's what people used to say to me when he was younger is that, how does he rebel against you? How does he hate you? He can't play loud music because you won't, you'll be all right with that. It's got to be complicated. It's, you know, it's about discovering, about discovering your, yourself, right? With music. I think that age difference early on, I was talking earlier just a little about um, Eric's in Liverpool where a lot of bands came together, you know, in like late 70s. But the the, the kids that were really, if you like, um, into punk rock, as it was called in the tabloids, we were all 20, you know, some of us had been to college. We were around about our 20s, early 20s. And they were like 14. And that, that age difference is huge. So they they were just not allowed in to see the bands that that were just happening, you know. Oh yeah. Um, but they, in a way, they can because they were. It was there was so much change and happening at that point. It was just in the air around outside. So as you say, once they finally got their amps working, they could just throw them down the stairs in Eric's, and it was all waiting for them. That that kind of club was was available. I, I wonder if it's. If it's more difficult today, you know, or just just different, probably. I rest my case. <laughs> well, it was different. In, when, when I was in DC, there was there had been this big DIY successful uh, scene with like the the bands that were on Discord, and it was you know there were a lot of sort of afternoon punk shows where there'd be like yeah, yeah. fifteen bands or something like that. And uh, we we would do that, and you know, you, I think you probably you either don't get paid or you get paid like ten dollars or something like that. Mm-hmm. Then I moved to Boston for a little while, and uh, that was when I was a little older. And there was like three nightclubs that you could play, and one of them, the Rathskeller. I don't know if any, if any of you guys ever played there. That was like the old punk. Club. I was one of the last people to ever play there. Actually, and it was empty. It was past it. <laughs> I was one of the last people to play at CBGBs too, which had also just at that point was just was gone was just there's nothing charming left about it at all <laughs> um the dying days of those places were not the time to be there um but uh i i i played in boston for a couple of years and i came to new york and i played my first show here and it was i had a midnight slot at the continental okay which is used to be on saint mark's place on easter sunday and there's probably i don't know not very many people there but that one show was so much more fun yeah. than anything I'd been doing in Boston or even DC when I was a kid for years. And I came to New York and suddenly there was 30 places that we could play and everybody had a band. And I met all these people that ended up becoming like, sort of coincidentally, a lot of them ended up becoming much more famous than I ever. Their, their bands did great. 
and there there became sort of a scene of people that knew each other in a lot of places to play and it was like right. new york was such a more welcoming spot it was just i wish i got near earlier it was such a waste of time being in boston to be honest yeah i think the first first place i ever played in in america was in new york i think hurrahs in new york with uh, Ruth Polsky used to run it. She she ran uh, Danceteria. She was like talent booker at Danceteria. And then she had uh, yeah. hurrahs. And we played like three nights there in this discotheque. <laughs> and it was uh, it, it was very strange, but it was yeah. but it was very cool as well. You know, David Johansson came to see us. That was the place. Yeah, yeah that was the place back then, definitely. I have a friend who was a DJ back then in the 80s, and that was really the hot spot. Right. Yeah, that would have been that would have been 1980. I think I think about it. That was where we yeah. First, but it but it was great, you know, and it was good to play there. I think we played in Boston at uh, MIT somewhere around there, and then we we played in um, Asbury Park, and that that was not great. That was that was kind of like that was like a bunch of guys with plaid shirts on with their backs facing us and just wondering what the hell was we were doing there, you know? Right, right, right. Did you do a wipeout tour? Because I did a I did a total wipeout tour in England. Like with like the thing had not caught like nothing. Where the first probably two or three times we were even there. Yeah, well, but that's the English anyway. You know they do it, they did it to us. You know, like we would go there like for the first month they'd love us. You know, and then we go and play somewhere in Holland and come back and everybody would be like, oh no, we don't like you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just a normal English thing. Um. I can't imagine that we did that in America. I think that first tour was probably a little like that, but not much. And then about six months later, we came over to LA and we played the whiskey and mm. Perkins Palace and places. And it, it sort of just kept going on from there. But um, there was some early shows, maybe in a couple of years, sort of further south that were a little strange, you know. And oh, and we played Salt Lake City. Right. For the first time in this big rodeo place with, you know, sawdust on the ground. And every weirdo from the whole state of Utah turned up just to, to see. That was always a little strange, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot, yeah. Those weirdos turned up every club around the States, I think. They just followed around. That's a dry city, too. <laughs> yeah, but there was an extra bunch of them there in Salt Lake City, for sure. And then we... I stayed in the hotel with the biggest bed, the biggest bed I've ever stayed at in any hotel in my life. And I, I, I kind of figured that one out after a while, why that was. But you know. <laughs> We were talking about first things that we heard, right, that we, we, we got listening to. And I found out last night, a lady by the name of Winifred Atwell, and she played something called the piano tuners boogie, and I found it on a seventy-eight. You know, we had a we had a wind-up gramophone from somewhere, and and it was all instrumental. She, there was no singing apart from she whistled, and so there was piano tuners boogie, and there was something called the poor people of Paris, and and I was just thinking because I'm down here with my two children as well, and they're playing a lot of reggae because they found reggae chart busters, and there's about 20 tracks from 1970-something like that are just reggae. And you drive your parents mad because you keep playing the same thing over and over and over again. So every time I wound the gramophone up, it was Winifred Atwell. Well, I just found out that Winifred was from Trinidad and Tobago, 
and she sold 30 million records in, in Europe. And so I was actually onto her, you know, onto something wow. that was happening. And I loved her. I liked, and, but I just found out where she was from. She was the first black woman to have a number one hit in the UK singles chart wow. and is still the only female instrumentalist to do so. Yeah. She must have lived in a palace selling 30 million records back then. 30 million? From Trinidad? That's not bad, man. <laughs> That's been the whole population. We thought we had the great idea to try to get the so whoever's still re remaining for the I-3s to sing on one of our records. And then we found out that they had sold something like <laughs> 30 million records and didn't have any time to answer our emails or whatever. So so what was your abiding memory, Hamilton, from your um, first experience of, of the, um, the Wipeout tour in the UK? I actually did a, a story. We're going to play there again recently. We haven't been there in a My band, The Walkman, hasn't played together for like a decade, and we're going to come over there and play. And I, I wrote a little thing about uh, everything I remembered about the first tour and just so many terrible events in a row and like shows like turn like driving to Bath and uh, showing up in the promoter, um, just having absolutely no idea who we were and never having heard. There's never a show. There's never going to be a show. <laughs> Oh then we asked if it could be a show and he said no <laughs> and uh so playing you know just terrible shows in london where just nobody was there and nobody whoever was there didn't want to hear us and and we had to we had our songs were all written on an actual a piano and we were insistent that we have a piano wherever we go so we bought it we drove to south london we rented this van and we ended up with like a up an upright piano but in in new york we had to spin it so we could carry it around we go to the place you could actually carry. but in london we ended up with a full upright with the <laughs> soundboard and like the big like 500 pound thing you know and we got we got to a show at the, the tiny club in camden the barfly or the monarch or whatever it's called yeah yeah the barfly and it's up like two flights of stairs you know oh yeah and we, oh yeah nobody had thought about this at all and we decided to take it up and we uh we got halfway up and we sent that thing straight through a wall i remember <laughs> left a huge hole on one side but we did get the piano up to the top and back down wow um just you know we went to like manchester and like the band we we're opening for had us thrown off the show and so we weren't allowed to then we asked if we could even play for free and they were like no that's not gonna happen either. wow that, that sounds awfully unfriendly doesn't it yeah. it was it was it they hit us hard man over and over and over again those are the days i don't think we didn't have a record out of we didn't know what we were doing we we're just trying to go there and see what would happen and we, we found out that's like um uh, a, a, a friend of mine and uh, Budge's, you know, the Slim, Slim Jim Phantom, you know, from Stray Cats, he told us about the first time they came to London. They figured, you know, like they were just going to arrive at the airport because they're from Long Island, right? And they figured, okay, we'll, we'll get off the plane. Ringo will be our taxi driver, you know, and it'll be just like, like that right 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 yeah <laughs> and he said for about a year they just sort of lived in these squats and things all around like punk squats around london and then they went to see this guy um keith altham who who was like he was the cures publicist for a while but he did the, like the rolling stones and things and they just arrived at his door one day and said we're the stray cats we're the best band ever and you know you have to help us do something and he's like well you've got a record out and they're like no you playing anywhere? No. 
can I see you anywhere? And, well, not really. So he, he said, okay, come back tomorrow. I'm going to rent a rehearsal room and, and come and show me what you, you've, you could do, you know? And they all turned up the next day and, uh, Keith loved them. So helped them get somewhere, you know, but I mean, it was like a real story of like, it was like, um, the artful dodger or something, you know, it was like these poor little waifs left in, in London. And they figured they'd come over and it'd all be, you know, right. streets paved with gold and stuff. And it didn't, didn't happen. So, but obviously that didn't turn you, um, away from England because you're going back, right? We went, yeah, I know we, we ended up breaking through, but it, it took a while. I mean, you know, I, I guess maybe our first record just never did anything there, but I think maybe our second record worked out. So then we, then things started to happen for us a little bit. And I've spent many times, or I've had plenty of good times over there. So I'm looking forward to going back. But, I mean, I would imagine it's pretty shitty for the European bands that come to New York. I mean, it's got to be pretty hard here. I mean, I live here, so, but, uh, you know, it's hard enough to get a hotel room here you know what i mean like i, I can't it, i can't imagine it's got to be real tough coming from a foreign country here yeah i think i uh the last time i i was in new york i, was, I did a little tour for my book and uh rather you know i, I just end up staying with some friends in manhattan because you know to book a hotel on the money that you were getting for a book tour which was absolutely nothing right um you know wouldn't have done it but i had a good time i had a good time you know that uh Went there, Long Island, New Jersey, you know, did some some stuff. But you're right, at first, I mean, that's what I think it's really hard for, for bands now. My son just did his first sort of full U.S. tour, like, you know, six weeks in a van with the three of them, 13,000 miles. Yep. And they were getting paid, like, you know, peanuts every night. So if they... The only way they could survive was by selling merch, by taking a whole bunch of merch with them, you know, and they'd yeah. end up selling that, and that would pay for a, a hotel for them. But I remember, and Budgie will recall this, back in the early 80s and that, if you could get, if you could do a tour, base it around a couple of big college towns, and you could get the, co you know, because college gigs always paid decent money, because it was like, you know, they had money to pay for entertainment, and so if, if they liked you, they would pay you, you know instead of being stuck out in the middle of the Midwest, some promoter that's like, well, you know, you can either play tonight for half of what I said I was going to give you, or you don't play at all, you know, and you got no choice at that point. So Yeah. We used to sleep on people's floors. You meet them at the show, and then, then you'd wake up in some stranger's house, like in their basement or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really tough for bands now, starting out. I, don't, I actually don't recall sleeping very much, you know. We are... Uh, if we had a hotel, it would be, um, it would be, uh, if we had a hotel, it would be the Gramercy Park or some other place where the cockroaches lived in the back bathroom and were, uh, larger than our, we, we, we were. Um, but I don't recall really, you know, we'd probably crash at somebody else's place and the hotel bed would never be slept in, you know. And that kind of went on quite often. Until more recently, when I went back, I came back to the States touring, not as, you know, the, the band that was my band, but just being a drummer in a band. And we were traveling a lot by van and we have a hotel maybe every third night. Uh, and I suddenly thought, whoa, this is like really touring. 
I hadn't done that for years. Right. But, um, yeah, so I suppose it's, you know, maybe we get tainted by what's happened since the first gigs and how it ends up, you know, a little bit more plush or a bit more com comfortable. But it's interesting, stepping back yeah. in time, physically, in the now. <laughs> <laughs> Into the vans? Back to the van. All on the... No, yeah, because it's not get on the bus, y'all. Yeah, I'm of that certain age, you know. I wouldn't make a habit of it, lol. Unless there's a nice bed and a shower at the end of it, I ain't going on tour, you know? Yeah, no shit. <laughs> what are we like? Where's the punk ethic gone? <laughs> it's still there. It's still there. It's just you know, not as furious anymore. The Ramones never stayed in hotels. <laughs> the Cramps didn't stay in hotels. Oh, yes, they did. But they all stayed in one room, I think. No, and look what, look what happened to them. <laughs> look what happened to them. Cult status. Well, they had a rotating cast, didn't they? They only, their husband and wife, and then the other people didn't seem to stick around very long in that band, so. Yeah, true, true. No. no, that's right. Yeah, we used to always pick up the guitarists as they dropped off. You, know? <laughs> you guys play with them? Certainly hung out with the Cramps back in the day. Uh, yeah, and, and Kid Congo's still a good friend. Uh, I love his band, The Pink Monkey Birds. That's a little plug for Kid Congo, ladies and gentlemen, and The Pink Monkey Birds. Yeah, that's cool. So I re just read somewhere that you you had like you built your own studio and you were, the Walkmen were like really playing around with a much more kind of uh, I suppose like a loose thing. Was were, were any of the German bands have any interest to you? Like Can? Can that was the first one that would come out of my mouth. The, the way that Can sounds definitely. We used to have an analog studio in Harlem and it was awesome in the early 2000s i guess that was when it started uh but because harlem was still pretty dangerous back then and uh cheap and so we could have it but then uh, in time of course the columbia university expanded up there and everything got expensive and then all of a sudden you got a tape machine. also that was right at the moment when everybody stopped using tape machines and we had just like sunk 10 grand into this tape machine that was uh -oh. suddenly worth <laughs> jack it wasn't even worth the price of getting it out of the room you know <laughs> and so suddenly we were paying rent on all that and so it was probably worth more again now that it's gone but uh yeah it, we were right right in the sweet spot of having a terrible idea where is it? Is it in a, in a, hole, a hole somewhere in somebody else's staircase? I think it's, I, I think I made it up upstate somewhere. Yeah, it's probably yeah in somebody's garage. <laughs> were you were you like kind of? Did you get to use the tape and chop and change, like do the old editing and things and editing block stuff, cutting between takes? A uh, little bit. I I, I worked at um, Inner Ear Studios when I worked in. In DC, I, I, I worked there as a teenager. Inner Ear was where like all the like uh, like Discord bands kind of played and stuff. So I learned how to do. Uh, that's where I learned how to use the equipment in the first place. Um, so by the time we got to our own studio, yeah, we could do little tape edits. But I mean, way more than doing that kind of shit was like somebody forgetting to not disarm the record and hitting play and then recording over, <laughs> you know, the, the drum track, and then yeah. one of us. Or the, the most common thing at our studio was forgetting to mute the uh, return and trying to punch in to say something to somebody and just blow.
blasting the guy's ear out with feedback. You know, you could just see somebody. Could, it's like it's like a thousand volts of electricity going through their body. <laughs> yeah, this is what I blame my tinnitus on now. Yeah. Uh, happy days. Do you guys have hearing? You guys have hearing problems. I was at a uh, music festival and they were giving away. Uh, they were doing free uh, hearing tests, and uh, they give you a chart when you walk out. And um, my mine was a big dip in my left ear in a four K and a slightly lesser one in the right ear, and it was from the guitar amp on my left and the ride symbol on my right. And they told me I had something called machine gunner's ear, which was, you know, from World War II, what the machine gunners would come home. And then everybody in the band uh, came out with their own little chart and their own little story. Wow. And then our sound man, <laughs> who was, he's 15 or 20 years older than me, uh, came out and he was just stone deaf. <laughs> Just <laughs> <the guy. laughs> wow! Yeah. Put Joe out the front to mix all the sound. He can't hear a damn thing, but he can—he's watched the meters or something. Yeah, it was a great moment. His chart chart was just flat. No, no, he—he was—he's super sensitive to sound pr- sound pressure levels. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. can feel the music. You know, he just felt he knew when the bass was like flapping his trousers, just like the Ramones, and he knew when the skin on the end of his nose was like kind of twitching. Right, <laughs> right. You know, the thing that was really disturbing to me in The Cure was, you know, because I played drums for a long time, you know, when they had the advent of in-ear monitors, I had some, you know, made, and the the audiologist came to see me, and she said, okay, I'm going to give you a hearing test so we can, you know, work out. And at the end of it, she said, oh, well, you, you play drums, right? So you probably know what I'm going to tell you, like, like some of the tops of your hearing are gone, you know? And I said, yeah, okay. So she said, well, we can, you know, amp that up a bit and, and it'll be better for you. We used to play the festivals and especially in Europe where they would, uh, they, you have a, you know, 95 dB limit or something like that. Or so, sometimes they get so low. You get over to like the Netherlands, it's like 85 or something like that. Yeah. And we're child, up there trying to play our big rock and roll songs. And uh, finally, after years of it, they would say, um, tell our sound man you know you go over this we're going to give you a 200 pounds ticket and he'd say all right find me (laughs) crank that thing up and we would just get a ticket and but it was you know it was worth it for us at that point yeah we we used to we used to play these places that would have um okay they would have this um this light at the back of the hall and and it would go like you know it'd be green and that would be like acceptable level and then it would be a, like an amber light that was like hey you're getting too loud and red the power would go the red <laughs> the just chop chop the power you know so we'd sit there the whole show like keep it on the amber just keep it on the amber you know oh my god well wow, I never I never came across that that's yeah that's amazing I um had the good fortune to bump into Dinosaur Junior again after a long time and. Um, Good to hear that Mr. Maskers was still uh, surrounding himself with stacks of little yeah. precision amps, but there's, there's like a wall of sound coming off stage. He's got a lot of amps, yeah. Yeah, he's got a lot of amps, yeah. Um, I remember the guitarist in the Banshees, um, John McGeoch, 
would go on stage and he would find the sweet spot in the stage where his guitar where, where he could tune the feedback almost i'd never seen anybody do it before and very rarely afterwards have i seen somebody purposefully find the spot in front you know the focal length of the speaker throw and the angle of the guitar as well you know like what do, do i have to lift it or move it to get that melodic feedback that works you know it was it was quite something um in, in many ways that kind of uh attention to detail or maybe maybe in ears kind of change that as well you know that that the feel of the amp the need to have speakers at a certain volume you know thinking of somebody like garbage i think were first to like to do away with completely with sound on stage and, and, and go for an all in-ear monitor mix. You know, it seems like that's what everybody does now, right? We, we never did that, and people were always saying that was a mistake. I guess, when, especially if you're playing something big, you really should do that, right? Because we were so, so loud on stage. We were just unbelievably loud. And uh, and it's just make, that just makes the job all the harder for the guy mixing it, right? Right, right. But then who cares about that? Yeah, right? I know, exactly. It's the only thing that makes it fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like do your job. It's too loud. Everything's too loud. Could could you just turn down? No, <laughs> no. Can I put some gaffer tape on your drums? No. That's why. That's why your guy was death. I don't miss those days, to be honest. I don't miss the days of the floor monitors blasting up and everybody just turning up a little louder, a little louder, a little louder. Right. Same old story. Yeah. So what's what's next, Hamilton? Uh, I'm working on a uh, film score right now uh, and uh, a new record simultaneously that uh, of my own solo work that I'm really psyched on. And um, I and then the Walkman is going to do this reuniting tour uh, that starts in like two weeks, which is just incredible. Good. Yeah, we haven't played together in a decade. Yeah. Oh wow, 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 that's great. Well, yeah. I, I'm excited. I, I, I'm looking forward to it. I really am. Oh, even better, even better. Can you use the same sound, man? Uh, he can't make it. He can't. He, he finally hung it up. Wheel out the same crew <laughs> from ten years ago. Oh man, I wish we 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 asked. He was he was our first choice, but he only you can do it, man. <laughs> he was from uh, South Central Los Angeles, and his first tour ever was yeah. Black Flag. Was knew his older brother and. Asked him if he could come tour through uh, all of Mexico with them. Uh -oh. He just got in their van when he was like 16, and that was where it started for him. Wow. <laughs> that must have been wild. Oh, it sounds like it's going to be a good year. It's going to be a good year. It's been lovely, lovely to talk to you. Well, very nice to meet you guys. Thanks so much. It's great seeing you. It's been great, been great seeing you, man. Great meeting you guys. Take it easy. See you around. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, 
Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2023.